Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Hey, everybody. If you want to tell the world something or sell the world something, head on over to Squarespace because they're going to help you build the website of your dreams. Say you want to sell some custom merch. Well, you can set up your online store, whether you sell physical digital, or service products, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. So go to squarespace.com stuff right now, and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code STUFF, and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry, and there's Roger Bannister, and we're all hanging out, running around, being crazy, and this is Stuff You Should Know. (laughs) Good intro. It was not my best. (laughs) Let me ask you this, Chuck. Do you miss the, the intros of yore where, like, I would relate some maybe current news story to what we were talking about, or, um... Just there would be like an intro that I presented. Do you miss that, or have you we know, evolved past that? Uh, I mean, I thought those were great for sure, and occasionally when you do them again, it's nice. But also, just don't mind the the banter version as well. I think they're both great. Okay, well, maybe I'll pepper it in a little more than I have been. That's fine. Okay, all right. I love it because I like the banter too. But I just want to make sure I'm not like slacking off on on you know my end that I'm supposed to be holding up. No, I mean, you know, that certainly keeps me quiet longer. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good or bad, depending on which one of us you prefer. (laughs) So, can't you just prefer both, you know? I like to think so. Um, Like, who's an Ernie fan and who's a Bert fan? Everybody's a Bert and Ernie fan, you know? Yeah. Okay. You like all Uh, three of the Charlie's Angels, equal. Yeah, but Cheryl Ladd was far and away the best. <laughs> you saw that she was on uh, yes. we were on Good Morning America 3. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we were uh, in our little virtual green room on Zoom. And it, when you're doing that, everyone, and you're on live TV, you're watching the feed of the television show. So you kind of know what's going on. And they did a teaser to go into commercial. It showed this, this very pretty lady with blonde hair kind of from a distance, though, sitting on the couch. And I went, in my mind, is that Cheryl Ladd? <laughs> and sure enough, they said, and coming up, Cheryl Ladd. Yeah. She followed us. We opened for Cheryl Ladd finally. I know. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, and I know what I'm talking about. I watch a lot of Charlie's Angels. Cheryl Ladd is definitely the best one. Okay. Don't at me. Um, so, I've got an intro for this one. Oh. You ready? Well, then let's do, we had the banter in the intro. Perfect. Yeah. Chuck. Yes. We're talking about the four-minute mile today. Mm-hmm. Let's begin. <laughs> uh, you know, I got this idea because I was, until I quit watching it because it's pretty terrible, I was watching that show Winning Time on HBO about the Lakers dynasty. Oh, yeah. Did it get bad? 
Yeah, I think it kind of stinks, but uh, uh, John C. Riley is really good in it. But he told a story about Roger Bannister and the fact that previous to Roger Bannister, no one had ever thought the the four minute mile was an achievable, like the human body just couldn't do it. Yeah, until he did it, and then it started happening on the kind of semi reg, mm-hmm. and it was in the show. It worked really well. It was a good story, and I thought, you know, I don't know much about Roger Roger Rogerster Banner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Roger Bannister or his story. So we had Dave Ruse cook up this article and it's, I found it super cool and kind of inspiring and uplifting. Yeah, it is. It's pretty neat. Um, Ruse did a really good job with this too. Like the, the suspense and I've got chills a couple yeah. of times reading. It. I did too. He, he asked us a shout out to um, a guy who wrote a book called the perfect mile, Neil Bascom, because he used it as one of his sources in it. He, I guess he thought it was so great that he wanted to shout out Neil Bascom. But um, one of the things that that you got to have to do when you're talking about the four-minute mile and why people thought it was impossible um, is to kind of start at the beginning because the mile hasn't always existed. So the four-minute yeah. mile hasn't always existed. Um, the mile's been around much longer than the idea of the four-minute mile. Um, in fact, it was the ancient Greeks who kind of kicked the whole thing off by coming up with a measurement called a stade. And a stade was the distance across a field in in an Olympic stadium. I guess the Olympic stadium. It was about 200 meters, right? And so if you were were running around a a modern track, like a track and field track, you would go halfway and stop, and you'd shout, stade! That's what I do when I run. Yep. (laughs) I go about halfway around the track, I'm finished. I Stade, and everyone's like, what's up with this creep? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was, the Greeks were into their running events, and the 200 meter, the half lap, as we know it, the Stade, was the big showcase event. And then they had uh, the uh, di- Diulos, Diulos? Mm-hmm. Sure. That was two Stades, that was a 400, and then they had even longer ones, all the way up to about 4,800 meters uh, and then we get, if you want to know where the the name mile came from, came from? What is going on with me? I guess you're getting old. <laughs> a little foggy. Oh, no. No, no, no. Uh, the Romans, they ran, but th- that wasn't like their premier event. Mm. Um, but the Romans did like to march. And when mm-hmm. they did march, they marked their distance every thousand strides. Uh, and in Latin, uh, it's that it was known as a, a mile passus. Mm-hmm. M-I-L-L-E, uh, with a stride being two steps, about two feet, five inches. So at that time, every mile passus was 4,833 feet, still not quite where we are today. Right, and that's considered the first mile. Uh, and it became like a, a, a regular marker that Romans used. The other thing Romans were famous for was um, building roads everywhere they went. And they marked these miles, these somewhat shorter miles than what we consider a mile today, um, along these roads. And what's crazy is that these Roman roads existed in, say, the UK for centuries and centuries. I mean, like like tens of centuries. Um, so that by the 15th, 16th centuries, um, wealthy people in the UK used to have their their um, servants 
race one another from one mile marker to another mile marker. So first you've got the mile thanks to the Romans. Well, you have a history of foot racing thanks to the Greeks. A mile thanks to the Romans. And then the mile run thanks to the Brits in the 16th and 17th centuries. Right. And then it took, uh, I believe, in 1592 to get to where we are today lengthwise because British Parliament said uh, a mile is eight furlongs Mm. and a furlong is 660 feet uh, or 1,760 yards or the very familiar 5,280 feet. Uh, But we should note that as far as a mile-long race, um, we still don't do that mile-long race in the Olympics. We do the 1,500 meters, which is almost that. It's 15 sixteenths of a mile. Yeah, so close. It's just so maddening. It's like, just keep going a little further. It's kind of annoying, actually. Um, the same thing uh, happens at track meets in high school and college. Um, starting in the 80s, they started building tracks to a uniform 400 meters. And you can't really c- divide a mile by 400 meters cleanly. So you've got four times around the track is about as close as you can come to a mile. I think it's nine meters shy. Just of run a mile more meters. Yeah, I know. Line there. Yeah, exactly. Like that finish line's not movable, huh? Come on. Let's let's get it together everybody. But they don't. They do have special mile races for college and high school. Yeah. Um but it's not like a regular event. It's usually a 400 meter, 800 meter, 1200 meter, 1600 meter, 16000 meter. Right. Uh, something like that. <laughs> yeah. 160 million <laughs> okay. meter race. All right, so we're going to go back in time again uh, to the 19th century when, you know, remember our episode on pubs and taverns, they got into running and and sporting stuff aside from like darts, and they had tracks sometimes built out behind them, and they would organize these mile-long races, and people could bet on them, and the runners were called pedestrians, so initially the sport of running was called pedestrianism, which is hysterical. (laughs) So it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. (laughs) No. Uh, And then someone said, hey, we've got all these cricket fields and we've got all these soccer or football fields to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a a circle around one of these things is about a quarter of a mile if we if we plan it right. And a quarter mile track is what we're looking for. So they started putting these tracks around sporting fields. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, a really easy way to to race a mile against another person. Right. Or the clock. Or both. Yeah. Yeah, you could run against the clock and a person at the same time. It's been done. Yeah, Um, we do it all the time. (laughs) So because, by the way, pedestrianism reminds me of like a clinical term for a kink. Like (laughs) walking around in public (laughs) with no pants on, like porky pig in it it would be pedestrianism. Yeah. Um, so because the, uh, publicans figured out like, hey, we can, we can make money off of this. It started attracting more and more people and it became more and more popular. And there was like this, this whole jam in the 19th century where pedestrians were called milers because people were nuts for the mile race. Um, and there were pretty quickly in the beginning of the 19th century, like pedestrian stars, Miler, mile racer stars, um, probably uh, highest among them was a guy named Captain Robert Barclay. The reason that he was such a star is because he was the first guy to break the five-minute mark, which at the time was considered beyond the limits of human endurance. Sure. And, you know, pretty great. Five-minute mile is not bad uh, in those <laughs> conditions, especially when you look at 
the meals that this guy would eat, Barclay, his training mm-hmm. regimen mm-hmm. included, quote, a breakfast dinner of beef steak or mutton chops underdone with stale bread and old beer. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I don't know why it's got to be stale and old. Whenever I think of uh, training, like eating for training, I think of that 5K on the office, Michael Scott, like, yeah. who's trying to carb load. So we uh-huh. need a big thing of <laughs> fettuccine Alfredo yeah. right before the race. <laughs> that was so great. That was a good one. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, the Barclay had kind of a weird regimen, but it worked for him. And also, you have to consider, Chuck, like, these these people were not running in, like, you know— on clouds or anything or Nikes, they were running in like probably some the most uncomfortable shoe anyone living today would have ever encountered. And this guy was still running a five minute mile. Yeah. On, you know, who knows what the the tracks behind the pubs were made of, but like legitimate racing tracks were made mm-hmm. of like tiny rocks oftentimes. Or cinders, I was surprised to see. Which is a tiny rock. Oh, is it? I thought it was like old wood. Burned wood. No, it's like, I think it's sort of like crushed lava rock. Okay. Okay. I got gotcha. you. Okay. That, <laughs> that doesn't sound very comfortable at all. No, not at all. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, one of my, and I still love it, one of my favorite war movies growing up because it was a big HBO special was Gallipoli. Hmm. And uh, that had a, a sort of a sub story about uh, Mel Gibson was one of the young stars. And I can't remember the other guy's name, this other Australian. Uh, uh, they were like track foes and then eventually friends. And I remember just seeing the shoes that they were running on and the tracks that they were running on Yeah, when I was like 10 and 11 years old, just thinking like, what is going on <laughs> back then? <laughs> Nothing but pain. That's what good was movie, going on. Way. Foot pain. Was it a good movie? I've never seen it. Yeah. Fantastic. That's the first time I've ever heard it pronounced out loud too. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. So the the nineteenth century was a big a big deal for um for running, basically. People were super into it. There was a lot of betting going on. There were professional runners who made a career out of it. And like we said, Captain Robert Barclay was the first guy to break the five minute mile. Um that was the beginning of the 19th century. By the toward the end of the 19th century, they were getting closer and closer to breaking the four-minute mile. Like, just in that century, with those terrible shoes, they had gone from five minutes to really close to four minutes. Yeah, and it was really cool. Like, there were, like you said, the professionals that were making prize money and people were gambling on it. But to the there was a certain, like, uh, academic class of athlete that sort of looked down upon them. Hmm. And they were known as, like, the gentleman amateurs And, you know, they went to Cambridge and they went to Oxford and they were educated and like excelled academically and they excelled athletically and they didn't feel like you had to give up the one to do the other. And it was sort of a pride in doing all those things really well. And we mentioned this because, uh, as we'll see, Bannister was one of these gentleman amateurs. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the earlier ones was a guy named Walter George. And he was one of the first big dogs that set a record that lasted about 30 years, a mile record. Yeah, he, um, he, so he was an amateur, meaning like he didn't run for money. He considered that kind of lowly being a gentleman amateur. But he raced against the, um, the top rated pro at the time, a guy named William Cummings. And in this meet called the Mile of the Century, um, 
they raced in front of a crowd of like 20,000 people. That's at amazing. The, it is. Because also, this is at the Lily Bridge Sporting Grounds uh, in London. And um, there, were, there weren't stadiums or bleachers. Like you had to like, <laughs> you were in a crowd of 20,000 people at ground level watching yeah. a race. No, you're watching the head of the person in front of you. Basically, yeah. So um, 20,000 people turned out for this mile of the century. And um, uh, Walter George won uh, with a, a time of, I think, 4 minutes, 12 seconds. And this was in 1886, again, with terrible, terrible shoes. I wonder if they were just the people in the front, like 10 feet, were just passing word back. You know, and they were like, they're both running fast. And then someone yeah. would go, they're both running fast. And they would just keep saying that until someone won. Until at the end, it was like, the boat, hurry, smashed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the panic ensued. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, it is good stuff. Um, but th- there's something to be said about that four four minute twelve second um, time. First oh, of yeah. all, it was the amateur uh, Walter George who who got it. Second of all, like that's really close to a four minute mile, and we're talking 1886 here, right? So all of a sudden, people are like, "Wait a minute, maybe maybe it's not impossible. Maybe it is impossible, but we're close enough." That there's there's runners, there's elite runners around the world. And this was a time where running was still really popular, not just in Europe, but in the United States as well, um, who were saying, I'm going to dedicate my career to chasing that four-minute mile. And um, it, that's, that's kind of what happened starting in the early 20th century. All right. I think that's a great place to break. Okay. We'll talk about a few of these people as that time ticks down toward four minutes. It's very exciting stuff. Right after this. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids, because let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Hey, everybody. It's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website. Whether it's an online course or custom merch, Squarespace has you covered. That's right. Courses is a great program. You can start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. That's right. With Fluid Engine, which is a next-generation website design system, by the way, it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. And don't forget the commerce side, because after that, you can charge a one-time fee, or you can even sell a subscription. Yeah. So turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code STUFF to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. Squarespace. 
Hey, everybody. Did you know that Boricua is the name for someone from Puerto Rico? But it's more than just a name. It's a way of life and representation of the vibrant spirit of the island. Yeah, that's right. It's an island that's filled with adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the entire United States. That's right. Or you can get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico that remind you of why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island. It becomes a part of you. That's right. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, friends. As every parent knows, kids seem to be everywhere all at once, and it's really tough for even the most watchful moms and dads to protect their little ones from every single thing. Yeah, Duracell understands this, and that's why they're deeply committed to lithium coin battery safety. Lithium coin batteries power a bunch of important things around people's homes, including things young children may have access to. So Duracell not only educates parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of lithium coin battery safety, they also make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Even Duracell's packaging is child-secure and designed to avoid accidental opening. Because they believe their products should provide more than just power. They should also provide peace of mind. You can learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. All right. So Walter George in 1886 has set the record at the time, which is what? 412. Mm-hmm. Yes. And 30 years later, almost 30 years later, a man named uh, American actually named Norman Tabor in 1915 mm-hmm. shaved off two tenths of a second. So now <laughs> Norman Tabor owns a world record. Yeah. And then for about 40 years, there were, you know, it started just going down little by little. There was a Finnish runner named Pavo Nermi mm-hmm. who uh, owned the record for a little while, I think brought it down to 410, uh, made the sport kind of even more popular. Uh, a Frenchman named Jules, uh, how would you say that? Uh, La Dumegu. La Dumegu mm-hmm. uh, went single digits for the first time at 409.2 and 31. A uh, New Zealander named Jack Lovelock brought it down to 407.6 mm-hmm. and 33. Uh, I think an American named Glenn Cunningham brought it down to 406.8. That was Glenn Cunningham, the Kansas powerhouse. And this is a cool story because he, as a child, had his legs burned in a kerosene accident that actually killed his brother, mm-hmm. was told he might never walk again. And apparently it hurt less to run than it did to walk. So I don't know if Forrest Gump got this from there, but apparently as a child, like everywhere he went, he was running. Exactly. And like he was told that he would never walk again. And he ends up growing up to set the world record for the fastest mile at 4.0, 406.8. Yeah. 
for a little while just, at least. That's an amazing story. Yeah. And also, we need to say, like, Jack Lovelock, Glenn Cunningham, Parvo Nurmi, these people are world famous. Like, if you went to America and you said Jack Lovelock, most people would know what you were talking about. Because, again, yeah. track was really, really popular in the United States for a while. And I went online to look to see what happened. And no one knows. Everybody's like, it's kind of tough to watch. It's, it's um, you know, it's just one person. It's not a team. People had hypotheses, but none of them were like, this is what happened. I suspect it was the rise of football. And people are like, yeah, football. And I like baseball, too. And it just kind of got edged out by the popularity of other sports. That's my guess. I feel like Olympic track is still very big. Definitely. Like, I feel like in America, at least in the Summer Olympics, like the Michael Johnsons and the 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 flow joes are like they make a lot of the biggest headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, I always loved. I was never good at track, um, and I never tried to do it. But I always really loved it growing up because my dad was a uh, collegiate track star. Oh, really? Uh, in a small school, Union University in uh, Tennessee, but he still owns some like records from Union as a hurdler. Oh, wow! And it was sort of his passion. So, like growing up, he would watch the track in the Olympics and really get into it. And I was always desperately trying to seek a way to connect with him. (laughs) So I would watch track and it still sort of is a special thing for me for the Olympics. Love watching track. Yeah, I can imagine it. It sucks me up um, every time too. But then, you know, after the Olympics, I forget all about it until the next Olympics. And there's plenty of races that are like run all around the world, around the country, like year round basically. And they don't get televised, (laughs) you know? Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's a big Olympic sport here, but you you don't no one talks about like the you know, the Hawaiian program or whatever. Right, but this is so this but this is at a time when like the world is into track. And one of the one of the things that happened that really kind of captured the imagination of everybody was when two Swedish runners became like the world's best runners and they started breaking one another's world record for the mile, getting closer and closer each time to a four-minute mile. Um, And there was this really famous meet between the two of them, uh, Gunder Hogg and Arnie Anderson. And it was in 1945 at Malmo in Sweden. Um, So it's the two best runners in the world, who everybody knows in the world. Both of them are Swedish. And this race is being held in Sweden. So it's like a big deal race. And both of these guys are like flip-flopped world record holders for the mile. That's right. And both of them got uh, basically cheated out of Olympic fame because of World War II. The games were canceled in 40 and 44 when they would have been at like the peak of their, you know, athletic ability. Yeah. Uh, But I believe the end up, I mean, like you said, they flip-flopped and it ended up at the Malmo event. I think uh, Hogg won and set the new record at 401.4. How close was he? Close. I saw that it was estimated that he was four strides short of a a four-minute mile. Yeah, and I think this really, like, hits home on just how hard it was to do, and it's still super hard, but how hard it was back then that the, the, the premier athletes in the world could get close but not quite get there. Yeah, like it didn't. It did. They. You didn't get any healthier. You didn't get in any better shape. You couldn't run any better than Arnie Anderson and Gunder Hogg. So, and they just couldn't do it. It must have driven them crazy. Yeah. You know. Oh, so sure. people, people, some people looked at it differently. There were two different ways to look at it. <clears throat> some people said 
These guys are 1.4 seconds off of a four-minute mile, right? Somebody's going to get there. We're just too close, and we've been edging closer and closer over the last, like, century or so. So somebody's going to get there. Other people said, look, if, if you know, Hogg and Anderson can do it, nobody can do it. It's beyond the limits of the capabilities of the human body. Yeah, there was a guy in particular, a track coach, uh, sort of a legend apparently named Brutus Hamilton, who he was one of the ones saying, like, it can't happen. And he coached at Cal Berkeley and did a lot of – he wasn't just sort of like, no, I just don't think it's going to happen. He he did a <laughs> lot of research on the limits, the physiological limits of human the human body and published a list of what he called the ultimates of human effort where he took a lot of these track and field sports mm-hmm. and basically said mm-hmm. no one will ever be able to – throw a javelin further than this or a shot put further than that or uh, or go over a high bar uh, until, by the way, look for a future episode on Dick Fosbury. That's totally okay. coming. Uh, and he said the mile, he just said, there's no way it's ever going to happen. The human body, there's just a physical barrier there that won't allow it. Right. And I read an L.A. Times article from the 90s that, that pointed out that every single one of those limits have been broken at least once. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's sort of the hubris of being in your own time and space and thinking that it'll never get any better. Yeah, that's a lot of hubris, though, to publish your hubris. Sure. You know? Yeah. So poor Brutus Hamilton, I I guess he had good intentions because he was saying, like, don't even try. Everybody just give up, which makes him a terrible coach, really. But I'm not sure what his motivation was. But um, there were people out there who were like, no, Brutus, Brutus Hamilton is wrong. Um, and one of those people was our hero of this story, Roger Bannister, who was a, a British dude um, who I believe was 24 when he ended up breaking the record. Yeah, I think if we were a PBS documentary, we would say, and it would be right before the commercial, is what Hamilton did not count on was the power of the human spirit. <laughs> the spirit of Roger Bannister. Because <laughs> that's really true. I mean – as you'll see, I mean, let's just go ahead and talk about Bannister. He was, uh, by all accounts, a great runner. He was an Olympic caliber <laughs> runner. Yeah. Um, but he was, like we said, one of those gentleman runners who was very stubbornly, apparently, a gentleman amateur. And like many times or much of his career refused to take on a coach. He would have his own methods of training. Um, he would go to school. He studied medicine at Oxford. And he, he didn't like give it all up to just train full-time and hire a coach to train him full-time in order to improve his times. No, this guy was training to be a doctor and an Olympic runner at the same time, in the same life. Uh Uh-huh, in the same years, in his early 20s. Exactly. So he was rather motivated, you could say. Um, And he started out ho-hum, kind of. I think he had a time of like um, 452 yeah, And his first race at Oxford, um, his first mile race, he was a freshman. He still came in second, so that was respectable, but he's like, this is not nearly good enough. Um, within a few months, he shaved 20 seconds off of his time. That's and he'd ridiculous. Also, yeah. And he'd also learned that he really liked this track stuff because he had been a cross-country runner in uh, high school or grammar school. Um, and when he got to college, he tried track. And in track— 
you can just run past a whole bunch of people when you, you know, kick it into sixth gear. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, I like doing that a lot. I'm going to start yeah. really <laughs> focusing on this track thing. And that's what he he did. He basically set all of his spare time toward training to be a track star in between times when he was studying and practicing to become a doctor. All right. I think that's a great time for a break. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll t- <laughs> listen to me. I'm Arnie Anderson. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'd run a fast mile. <laughs> that was great. That's the second yeah, sure appearance in the past few weeks, too. What's going on? Uh, the Swedes are in the zeitgeist. I guess so. All right. We're going to pick up with Roger Bannister and his sights set on Helsinki right after this. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids, because let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Hey, everybody. Did you know that Boricua is the name for someone from Puerto Rico? But it's more than just a name. It's a way of life and representation of the vibrant spirit of the island. Yeah, that's right. It's an island that's filled with adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the entire United States. That's right. Or you can get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico that remind you of why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island. It becomes a part of you. That's right. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, friends. As every parent knows, kids seem to be everywhere all at once, and it's really tough for even the most watchful moms and dads to protect their little ones from every single thing. Yeah, Duracell understands this, and that's why they're deeply committed to lithium coin battery safety. Lithium coin batteries power a bunch of important things around people's homes, including things young children may have access to. So Duracell not only educates parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of lithium coin battery safety, they also make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Even Duracell's packaging is child secure and designed to avoid accidental opening. Because they believe their products should provide more than just power. They should also provide peace of mind. You can learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode... 
Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Chuck, so we're talking about Roger Bannister, and he said, I really like this track stuff. And when he started to become a track star at Oxford, people started saying, hey, you know, there's some Olympics coming up. I think they're, they were the ones in Los Angeles, right, in 1948? Okay, was that 48? Yeah, and people said, you should run for that, you know. Um, you should try the the mile race. I think you'd do really well, maybe the 1500, who knows. And he was like, he was level-headed enough not to get swept up in that because he knew he just wasn't ready. So he decided he would set his sights on the 1952 games in Helsinki and train for those instead, rather than trying to rush things and and enter the 1948 Olympics, which he probably could have, but he just didn't have enough faith in his abilities to win gold. Um, So he put it off for four years. That's the kind of like mental discipline this guy had. (laughs) And that would be Helsinki, Sweden? Finland. (laughs) Do you get that reference? No, I wish I did. I might I did, just let though. it hang out there then. I always feel so foolish when things like this happen. Like, I I don't think I'm going to talk for the rest of the episode. No, you played it perfectly, though. You answered the just like in the movie. <laughs> All it right. Was, it was in— uh, Uncle Buck. Uh, <laughs> no, it was in Die Hard. It was when that jackass newscaster, they have, like, the terrorist expert, and he talks about something like the Helsinki— protocol or the Helsinki something mm-hmm. and he just butts in and goes and that's Helsinki Sweden <laughs> the guy's like uh, no Finland <laughs> so you did wow. perfect well, you did perfect too buddy I feel like talking again <laughs> so I sounded like a real jackass newscaster <laughs> you did but that's what you were going for uh, all right so where are we are, oh yeah he's, he says yes on Helsinki which mm-hmm. is 52 mm-hmm. and again shuns the coaching and starts kind of sponsoring, or not sponsoring, but um, planning out these races in all over the world. He raced in New Zealand. He raced in America. He was lining himself against the best runners in the world. Right. Uh, he ran a very high-profile race in Philadelphia called the Benjamin Franklin Mile, appropriately, mm-hmm. and became sort of a big star in America at this point, um, such that there was a headline, or I don't know if it was a headline, but something in a newspaper was quoted uh, no manager, no trainer, no monsieur, no friends. He's nuts or he's good. <laughs> That's pretty great. Very 1950s. Yeah, it is. It, especially with that voice of yours, man. It just hey, nails thanks. it. They also said that he was a, a, a worthy heir to Jack Lovelock, which just goes to show you how much of a star Jack Lovelock was because he'd raced like 15, 20 years earlier. Yeah. And where was he? He was at 408 by this point, by the way. Okay, so he's got it down to 408, and he's like, okay, I think I'm ready for the Olympics. Um, And he goes there, and he runs in the 1500, and he places fourth. So he doesn't medal. And this is completely out of step with the plans that he had. I just suddenly started talking like (laughs) William Shatner for some reason. Uh, And it was, you know, it was a big disappointment for him and England because this was— Post-World War II, England was, you know, got beat up pretty badly uh, as far as, like, the shape of the cities and especially London. Mm-hmm. 
and they needed some big athletic victories. And I think they only got one goal that year. They ended up um, kind of toward the top middle of the pack uh, with 11 medals total, but it was certainly kind of looked at as a, as a, a national disappointment as far as the Olympics go. Yeah, and Bannister was very disappointed in himself, too. I think he'd really felt, you know, the the spirit of England on his shoulders. So he felt like he failed his whole country. Um, and like I said, this this was totally out of step with his plans, which were he was going to get the gold in, in Helsinki, Helsinki in 52 and then retire from running and focus on medicine. And that's just what he was going to do with his life. And it didn't pan out like that. So rather than just being like, man, this sucks. I'm not even going to be a doctor anymore. I'm just going to go, I don't know, just be a shiftless drifter. How about that? Um, he didn't do that. He redoubled his efforts and said, okay, maybe I can't get Olympic gold. I had my shot, didn't make it. I'm going to focus my my sights instead on breaking the four-minute mile. That's what I, Roger Bannister, am going to do. And he set about doing it. Yes, and he had a little trick up his sleeve in that he was just – he was no ordinary runner. In his studies at a med, as a med student, he uh, had a research scholarship while at Oxford to study the physiological effects of running. Mm-hmm. So this is amazing. All of a sudden, he's doing these deep-dive experiments on – the very thing he's trying to achieve, which is what can the human body take uh, athletically? Uh, he had a paper called the carbon and, and like on a scientific level, he had a paper called the carbon dioxide stimulus to breathing and severe exercise, probably helpful. Mm-hmm. And another one called the effects on the respiration and performance during exercise of adding oxygen to the inspired air. So he's getting a scientific physiological understanding of what needs to happen, which was I think for sure, I mean, he had the heart, but it, this was definitely a leg up on his competitors. Yeah, definitely. And he had the help of a, a kindred spirit named Norris McWhorter, who would go on to found with um, his twin brother, the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, and Norris McWhorter was also into running. He was into data and analysis. Um, and so he he very eagerly helped Roger Bannister with these scientific studies, including being a guinea pig himself. And one of the studies... Um, that they conducted together was to put McWhorter on a treadmill, like a 1940s treadmill, by the way, or a 1950s treadmill, I guess, um, and just make him run flat out as fast as he possibly can for as long as he could. And I guess he made it to like the six-minute mark before he blacked out and fell and was shot like an arrow out of a cannon, (laughs) which wouldn't be very effective. (laughs) But it wasn't this case. It was a McWhorter arrow out of a treadmill cannon. And luckily, they had a bunch of blankets and pillows and stuff like against the wall behind the treadmill Uh uh, to catch him. Because I guess uh, Bannister had conducted this experiment on himself many times and knew what to expect. So he's like, okay, the six-minute mark. If I can just whittle down my time, uh, I can run flat out for four minutes um, and I won't collapse those are the those are the things here. The time running up against the time, and then collapsing at some point. Like it's it's that's what's going to happen if I if I run far enough. So from these studies, like he started to devise his strategy at breaking the four minute mile, and it's ex- extremely clever. Yeah, like it made perfect sense. He was like, I'm I'm so close, and and several of us are so close. If we can just stave off that collapse for a few seconds, then mm-hmm. we're there. Mm-hmm. And one of his big jams was conservation of energy. And when you look at 
like when you look at a Michael Johnson run or a Flojo or anybody in their prime, it, it always just astounded me uh, how compact and efficient their stride was. There was yeah. no, like if you look at me run, I, I look like a <laughs> sick chicken, you know, there, there's no form. There's no efficiency. Uh-huh. I'm like limbs are running all over the place. And, you know, that's when you look at these elite athletes, their strides are perfect uh, machines of efficiency, basically. No wasted energy. Right. And and that was one thing that Bannister, you know, zeroed in on. Like you, you like, like you, you're just moving forward. That's everything. Yeah. Every movement of your muscle was to propel you forward. Um, the other thing is he he was trying to figure out how to expand his his um, cardiopulmonary um, limits. Yeah. Um, to take in more oxygen when he inhaled a breath, um, he could probably breathe through both nostrils. I'm guessing. Right. <laughs> um, he didn't have a deviated septum. To um, lower his resting heart rate, which is a, a telltale sign of either somebody with a heart condition or uh, an elite athlete. It's weird that both of those have um, yeah. lower resting heart rates. So he worked on this stuff. He figured it out. But he also realized that he needed help. He needed basically teammates. And so um, he went against his own uh, his own type and met up with the two Chris's, Chris Chattery and or Chris Chataway and Chris Brasher, and he used these guys. Well, didn't use them. I think they were fully aware and you and and like willing participants. Yeah, they were on his training team. Right. Okay, that's a better way to put it. Um, he used them as pacers, so they helped him keep his pace. And um, after three laps around the track, they would unleash the banister. Yeah, <laughs> that was Ooh. the strategy. <laughs> Dirty. Uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting, too, the idea of having these pacers because it is a solitary sport. But clearly you are better when you have either racing against someone or in this case have a pacer that's sort of, you know, reminding you how fast you should be running at this point in the race. Because it's not it's not a sprint. You know, there's there's a technique there mm-hmm. and there's a game plan. And mm-hmm. in every case, I believe, uh, generally, it's you got to save some for that final burst. Right. Otherwise, you're toast. That's why you see these great moments where someone comes from like five or six back at the end because they have saved more than the other people have in front of them. Yeah, and that was the role of the two Chris's, to keep him from expending too much energy too early. And they were really good at running a specific pace. And because he had two different pacers, he – like each one could run at a specific pace without exerting themselves beyond their own limits. Um, Because the first Chris would run the first two laps. The second Chris would run the third lap. And then the fourth lap, Bannister ran by himself just away from the pack. And this was their strategy. Um, This was what they trained for. And um, apparently he didn't run for like eight months before the race that he ran on May 6, 1954 at Oxford. Yeah. Um, and he he chose this race very uh, wisely and, and deliberately. It was well, on I think he track. didn't race other people specifically. Right, he trained. He run. Yeah. Right, he was training, but he didn't participate in any actual race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he chose this, the, the place, the site, the day, everything very carefully, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, so he chose his favorite track, which was uh, the Ifley Road track at Oxford. Uh, and again, this was the cinder track. And on the morning of May 6, 1954, it would 
uh, it had rained. And so a cinder track is going to be soggy, which would indicate like slower times. And in his memoir, he, he sort of was like, you know, everything, well, I'll just read it. Uh, I had reached my peak physically and uh, psychologically. There would never be another day like it. This was my first race for eight months. And all this time had been storing nervous energy. If I tried and failed, I should be dejected and my chances would be less on any later attempt. So what he was basically saying was, it's now or never, today. Yeah, and what the problem was is be, the weather wasn't cooperating. So <clears throat> whether whether it worked out or not, this was his day. Um, so he went out there, of course, to try it. And it just turns out that this this terrible weather, the wet track, the gale force winds, everything just kind of died down by race time. And he was like, okay, everything's starting to fall into place. This this is, in fact, going to be the day that I, I break that four-minute mile. And apparently, uh, he got ready and set. And um, if this were a movie, you, you'd be like, I can't believe they did that. But apparently, in real life, there was a false start. Yeah. All this buildup, Roger Bannister is about to, like, pop from nervous energy. And there's a <laughs> false start. They have to start over again. So, he has yeah. to reset his mind back at the starting line. And then, finally, it starts. And I think Brasher, Chris Brasher, was the one who ran, uh, who paced him for the first two laps, right? That's right. So, he's setting pace. Bannister is yelling at him to go faster. But he's it, that's basically Bannister being a little overhyped in the moment. And thank goodness he had his pacers there because Brasher's, Brasher's job was to stay in the moment and know what the pace should be and not, like, deviate from that. So he he didn't go faster. He stayed that pace that he knew he should stay on mm -hmm. and ignored him, basically. And they were at the half-mile mark at 1.58. So it is – they're halfway there. They're on pace to do it. And then Chris Chataway takes over. Yeah, and so Chadaway and Bannister are running for um, the third lap, the three-quarter of a mile mark where they finish, and they're at three minutes, 0.7 seconds. Three oh, they're so close. minutes and seven-tenths of a second. And they're a little bit over. That's a little bit nerve-wracking. Um, and then at the end of that three-quarter mile mark, at the end of the third lap, Chadaway just melts away, and Bannister takes off. And Bannister had figured out how to accelerate, how to move himself after being exerting himself for three minutes. You know, like this was a really fast three laps around the race. And he figured out how to find a different gear and he put it into that gear and he took off at a sprint for the last, the fourth lap. And he ended up crossing the finish line uh, at what, Chuck? Well, this is the coolest part, uh, and the way Dave puts it is really very dramatic and awesome. Uh, the announcer at the event, uh, I think it was his buddy Norris McWhorter, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. Which is so cool, just like the movie moment, his best buddy's there. And he said, the result of event number six, the one-mile winner R.G. Bannister of Exeter and Merton Colleges, in a time which will be a new English record, a new track record, a new British Empire Commonwealth record, a European record, a world record, and three. And apparently, as soon as he said three, everyone went nuts and you couldn't even hear the rest of the time announced. Yep. So Bannister ended up running that day a uh, three minute, 59 and four tenths second mile. The <sighs> first human being in history, as far as we know, 
uh, to have run a mile in less than four minutes. Amazing. He did this impossible thing. People were like, it's not possible, and Bannister did it. And what's really remarkable and weird and kind of circles back to John C. Riley, is <laughs> within six weeks, Bannister's four-minute mile, this thing that no human had ever done and they've been trying to do for centuries now, in six weeks, Bannister's record was broken. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was John Landy of Australia. Go Australia. Mm -hmm. He beat his time by one second. And then in 54, there was a showdown between the two of them, which was a big one. You know, you've got Britain against Australia at the Commonwealth, uh, British Empire and Commonwealth Games in Vancouver. And they the race was called the Miracle Mile. Uh, Landy is ahead on the final turn and apparently glances over his left shoulder That's to see it. where Bannister was. And Bannister booped him on the nose and passed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He had flair like that. Yeah, he did. Uh, they both finished under four minutes, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. Like I th I'm sure that was the first time in, uh, there were ever two runners in the same race. Yeah. But uh, Bannister won 358.8 to 359.6. And since then, over the years, there have been more than 1,500 athletes to do it, uh, 13 high schoolers. And it is not old hat, though. It is every time it happens to any athlete, it is a very, very big deal still. Yeah, to put it in perspective, um, the number of people who've climbed Mount Everest, which was long considered another impossible feat for a human, um, is about 6,000. Only 1,500 have ever broken a four-minute mile. So it is rather significant when somebody does it still, like you said, for sure. And it was, you know, uh, Dave makes a point, you know, that obviously the, the tracks now, the shoes, the training, the advanced medicine and training and everything they do now is a big deal. But there was there was clearly something to that psychological barrier and that they started to fall like dominoes, these four minute miles right after he did it. He proved to everyone it can be done. And so everyone else said, well, you know, if this medical student can do it, mm -hmm. this gentleman athlete can do it, then I can do it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they, they, you can make the case that it's like the, the chance of it being impossible was broken. It was now possible and you knew it was possible. So you didn't have that chance of impossibility hanging over your head when you walked up to the starting line anymore because Roger Bannister cleared that away. And what's neat is he uh, he went on to live a very long life. Uh, I think he lived for 64 more years. He died just in 2018, actually. Um, and he got to just soak up all the accolades for that, that whole time. And he did retire from running. He went on to, um, I guess, become a doctor. And, and then later, he became the dean of the medical school at either Oxford or Cambridge. I cannot remember. And um, if you are from Oxford or Cambridge, don't be mad at me for not knowing which one's which. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you imagine what it was like for the rest of his life? Every party, every place, every dinner he ever attended, he sticks out his hand. like It's like saying I'm Chuck Yeager, you know? It's like, it doesn't matter what happened since then. Everyone is like, wow. Yeah, he says, I'm Roger Bannister. I ran the mile in three, and everybody in the crowd just starts cheering at every party. He's at. <laughs> He can it's never like Dick, get it out. It's like Dick Fosbury. People say, I'm Dick Fosbury. You know what I invented. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know oh, anything don't? about this Dick Fosbury. I, it's like oh, you're, you got an in-joke well, with me, but I'm not in on it. <laughs> we'll do a, an episode on it. He invented the Fosbury flop, which is going over the high jump bar backwards. No one had ever done that before. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to talk about this guy. 
Yeah, because that was a crazy, weird way to do it. And uh, plus, his name is Dick Fosbury. <laughs> right. I mean, that's <laughs> enough to do a, a, at least a short stuff on. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, look at you. Mm, shade. What did I do? <laughs> a short stuff? Uh, well, no, I'm saying just for your name being Dick Fosbury, that's oh, enough oh, to get oh, you oh, a short. Even if on. he didn't do anything <laughs> remarkable <laughs> at all, we could just talk 15 minutes about a name like Dick I got Fosbury. You. <laughs> I got you. You and I. Uh, what's could. the What's the current record, by the way? Um, the current record is held by uh, Hisham El Garouge of Morocco, um, and it is three minutes forty three and three tenths of a second. And that's a twenty three year old record. Yeah, that was ninety nine. That's and pretty amazing. Sifan Hassan of the Netherlands holds the women's record, which is four twelve. So the four minute mile apparently has not been broken by a woman yet. Not yet. It will though. Yeah, definitely. Um, you got anything else? I got nothing else. I love this episode. Me too. It was a good one. Good pick. Good idea. Thank you, John C. Riley, for this one. Yeah. Uh, and since I just thanked John C. Riley, obviously it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this a little love for our TV show. Did you see this one? <laughs> yeah. It was very sweet. I thought so. Uh, hey, guys, want to write this email because my wife recently subscribed to Discovery Plus. And after a few days, I realized I finally had the opportunity to watch your TV show. Nice. Uh, I have to admit that for the first 15 seconds, very first 15 seconds, Brains Gone Wild had me hooked. <laughs> and that was the name of, uh, well, long story. But as it aired, that was the name that, of our first TV episode. <laughs> right. The pilot aired last, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. It, don't In ask. standard it fashion. Weird, weird thing. Uh, I believe that the show was ahead of its time. Well, well. Thanks. And I'm saddened that the only season, uh, only one season was produced. However, I am uh, grateful that the Stuff You Should Know podcast lives on. Uh, recently caught up to the 2018 episodes. Oh, wow. So Chris isn't going to hear this for a few years. <laughs> uh, I'm excited to hear you two cover recent topics of, as they unfolded. Uh, I love you all, and I thank you for keeping me happy, educated, and grounded through the years. And I look forward to the great content to come with the biggest hugs one can muster. And that is from Chris L. So I did write Chris L. back and say this is going to be on listener mail. So maybe he'll start sandwiching or something. Very nice. Hugs back to you, Chris L. We appreciate that big time. Uh, if you want to send us accolades for our TV show or anything else, we'll accept those anytime. You can wrap them up in an email, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.
Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. In business, first impressions are everything. And that's why every business owner needs to know about Ruby. Ruby is the virtual receptionist company who screens, transfers, and takes messages 24-7, all while making your customers feel special. You definitely don't want to hire a subpar front desk person. And with Ruby, they engage with your callers in a conversational way, just like your best employee would. Never miss another customer call again. This year, make your business the best it can be. Visit ruby.com today or just call them at 844-900-RUBY.